following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, welcome this evening. We're glad that you are attending in person or online at Fellowship Bible Church. And, oh yeah, come right on up to the front row. There you go, very good. We welcome you to open your Bibles tonight to First Chronicles and the 13th chapter. I think the young people are going out now, so if you want to make your way out, you guys enjoy your Truth Tracker's time. First Chronicles 13. That's a rather short chapter. Gives an important account in the history of Israel. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor and Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah to Kirjath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of I'm sorry the ark of God the Lord who dwells between the cherubim where his name is proclaimed so they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might with singing on harps on stringed instruments on tambourines on cymbals and with trumpets and when they came to Chidon's threshing floor Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God to me? So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom meaning the servant of Edom, in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. So two questions probably come up there to you, one easy, one more difficult. What is the uh, story of the ark being on this cart and a man reaching out his hand to steady it because it was uh, rocking around on there due to uneven ground, it seems like. The scripture was clear back in the creation, the, the plan for the tabernacle and the ark that the ark was to have rings in the side of it and poles were to be made for it and men were designated to carry it on their shoulders using the poles through those rings that were attached to it. It was only to be carried 
by hand, if I could say it that way, manually, by shoulder, by individuals. So there'd be perhaps four men, one on each corner, carrying this, and thus it would be safe from the uneven ground uh, in any circumstance. But that was how God instructed for it to be carried. Now, the thing that troubles me is not that just a few people got their heads together and said, let's move the ark. That's fine. That was good. That They should have done that. It's not that uh, even a few people got their heads together and said, let's move the ark and let's use this me- methodology. But the whole population, doesn't it say? They all were there and they were all in accord on this plan to move the ark. So what happened? Didn't anybody like raise their hand and say, shouldn't we carry this <laughs> instead of putting it on the cart? Nobody? Or had they advanced beyond obedience to the word of God at that point somehow? I don't think so. Not at all. But that's a, that's a troubling aspect of this. The second part is in verse 11, David became angry. How do you think David became angry? At whom was David angry? There's two answers, two possible answers that I can think of. One is he was angry at God, which is not highly recommended. The other is if you're a sensitive person, you might be angry at who? Yourself. You might be angry at yourself. Man, I shouldn't have done that. Now a man is dead. I was stupid. Why? Why did I do that? So it's possible that probably the common reading is that David is angry at God, but it may be that he was angry with himself and he was afraid of God. So was he angry at God or afraid of God? Perhaps afraid of God and angry that he didn't realize what he should have done and and then asked, how can I bring the ark of God to me? Now, he could have brought the ark of God to him. He could have confessed. He could have gotten up before the people and said, look, I led you to make a bad mistake. We sinned. We shouldn't have done that. We should do it this way. Let's do it right. Let's get get with it and fix the problem. So he could have. It ended up being moved later on. Uh, We'll come to that here in chapter 15. Uh, a couple chapters from from here. All right, let us put that issue to rest for now and turn our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, please, and chapter number 9. On the church website is available this document for you to look at if you wish. Uh, It was uh, what I used last Sunday night, and I actually forgot to upload it last Sunday afternoon for you, so... It's there now, and uh, it's updated. It was uh, 9 or 10 pages now. It is 14, uh, so it is growing. And as we look at the notes at the chapter, it's a rather lengthy chapter, 38 uh, verses. And uh, the, the chapter, to me at least, as in, in my study, resists a compact summary statement. Uh, in it, Jesus helps sinners. He teaches about the new era of faith. Is against the uh, over against the old wineskins of Judaism. We looked at that on Wednesday night, I believe. He demonstrates vast supernatural power, and at the end of the chapter, describes the the deep need that there are for shepherds to give people spiritual guidance. And we looked at that probably two Wednesdays back now, or three, can't remember. Um, but you can get that lesson online if you want to listen into it. So Jesus forgives sin in the first part of chapter 9. 
This is the paralyzed man who was carried to Jesus on a bed. Uh, They brought him in front of him. There's more description in other uh, gospel passages about this. But uh, he said, uh, be of good cheer, your, sons are, your sins rather, are forgiven you. Son, your sins are forgiven you. And, of course, the scribes, Pharisees, said that this man was blaspheming. He, he was not obviously blaspheming because we know who he is, Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, but he addressed them and showed them, hey, you know, if, if I can tell this man to get up and walk, do you think that I can forgive his sins? And he went ahead and he demonstrated that. So Jesus forgives sin. We took an application from that very simple. Jesus can forgive your sins. He has the power to do that. Um, I was speaking to uh, Naomi, and I just remembered uh, we've been speaking about forgiveness uh, a little bit lately and um, here in the church and in individual conversations, and I remembered the Lord on the cross said something about forgiveness, didn't he? Remember that? But how did he say it? Do you ever think about how he... Did he say, I forgive them? How did, what, what did he say? Like Stephen, Father, forgive them. Why? Why Father? Why does he address him as uh, the, the issue to the Father? Well, because it's against the Father primarily and firstly that they were sinning. Father, forgive them. Jesus might forgive them as a man, but the issue for them is, will God the Father forgive them? For their iniquity. So he knows, he asks God the Father, or, you know, asks God to forgive them for that iniquity. Kind of an interesting little detail. But here he directly forgives this man's sin and shows the power that he has in order to do that. He also shows his omniscience in that passage, which is very interesting. Uh, In the calling of Matthew 9 through 13, as you look down through the chapter, you see that. It's not only that he calls Matthew, but that Jesus comes to help sinners. And again, the uh, Pharisees and the scribes complain uh, like they did in Luke 15. Remember in Luke 15, the the Pharisees are complaining because Jesus uh, goes with sinners and tax collectors and eats with them and, and tries to work with them. And Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then the longest of the parables in Luke 15, the parable of the, remember? Most people call it the parable of the prodigal son, but it's actually, I would call it the parable of the lost son. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And he gives that parable, and in the end of the parable, they, if they were sharp, would have understood that the older brother in that parable represents them. Because that older brother was angry at the father for extending forgiveness to the prodigal son. Just like the Pharisees were angry at uh, Jesus for going to work with sinners. And so that was quite a pointed parable. Uh, it's kind of like you know the other parables, like when Jesus talked about the vineyard and the, and the Pharisees, they perceived that he was talking about them, the people working the vineyard who, who killed the son of the the owner of the vineyard. And yes, indeed, he was talking about them. They couldn't stand that. It just made them all the more full of rage. But Jesus came to help sinners, and and that's why we're here, too. He leaves us here to do that. Um, Several people have uh, 
said over the years and even recently in my hearing, I wonder why God still has me here, especially older folks. And uh, the answer to that is there is something more for you to do. You have some um, work to do to honor God, to serve God, to live for God, and perhaps to reach some lost soul who needs Christ. Now, then we looked at the uh, story of the wineskins, or the parable of the wineskins, rather, and um, the new and old cloth in verses 14 through 17. And the teaching here is that Jesus is bringing a new era of faith, a new age of religion, if I could use that word in a very loose sense, that we're not fitting all of this into the old forms of Old Testament Judaism, but we are doing something new. There's an adaptation, an adjustment, a really a fulfillment, a completion, a new thing. Then last time, I think it was last time that we were together, we looked at the demonstration of Jesus' supernatural power in healing a woman who had a bleeding problem and then also raising a girl from the dead. We actually began to look at that raising of the daughter from the dead. And so let's go back and look at that. This is unheard of in, um, during the times and unheard of today. Can you just imagine if there was somebody who legitimately went around and raised dead people from, at the funeral homes? Uh, that would be incredible. Went to the morgues, went to the coroner's office, you know, and uh, cut the autopsy short raised up people from the dead. This is the power of Jesus, the power of Christ, the power beyond what we can imagine. So what happens? Uh, A ruler came, verse 18, and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now there's some question because two of the gospel writers, Mark and Luke, say that she's at the point of death. And then later on as they make their way to the house, People report to the guy, look, your daughter's dead now. It's over. Forget it. Um, but here he's certain that she is dead. So I'll leave that, that textual variation or that variation of the story off. The point is, Matthew's summarizing very accurately what's going on here, that this girl is either at the point of death or she's just died. Her body is yet warm, and this, this father is desperate. There's no medicine that could help. There's no doctor that could help. He and his wife and perhaps other family members are sitting there saying, what can we do for our daughter? And they realize or remember or somebody tells them there's a miracle worker named Yeshua who has been going around doing amazing things. Maybe he can raise your daughter. And then it says, so Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. Uh, No words. Just he went, and suddenly the woman who had a flow of blood. So this is where that intersects the story here, 29, 30, I'm sorry, uh, 20, 21, and 22. And then we come back to our story about the daughter, verse 23. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And Then their wailing turned to ridicule. They ridiculed him. Uh, On this notion of having a noisy crowd wailing, flute players, uh, the culture at the time 
we are told, uh, would often, well, actually required as a kind of expression of grief that the family hire mourners, wailers, people to play music. And so they had some instrument players here, flute players, and then people wailing uh, at the death of this young girl. So when he said she's sleeping, they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. The other gospel writers give a longer account here, and they record what Jesus said to the girl. Do you remember what he said to her? It's difficult to remember because it's not in English. Do you know? Close. Talitha kumai. The kumai is a word that is raise, be raised. Little girl, arise, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. It would be hard to hide that kind of news, wouldn't it? So the ruler here expresses faith that Jesus can raise his daughter from the dead and bring her back to life again. Matthew cuts to the chase here, says the daughter has just died. As I said, her body was still warm, and the man pleaded, pleaded for his daughter that Jesus raise her from the dead. Maybe because, he he figured maybe because she's just entered into death's doorway, she's not very far down the pathway into Sheol, maybe Jesus can snatch her back to them. He could do it. But how could the man have such faith? if he had never seen Jesus resurrect anyone at all. Resurrection is impossible, after all, isn't it? But really no more impossible than the other things that Jesus had done. This was just another level of the same kind of thing he had been doing all along. I mean, can you... Healing eyes, making mute speak, casting out demons... Raising the dead is not really all that much. I mean, we think it's, wow, it's, it's pinnacle. It's a real miracle. But somehow this man had faith to know that Jesus could, in fact, do this. The man asked Jesus to lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, do you notice anything about that phrase, lay your hand on her? What would that do to the normal person? It would render them unclean. Touching a dead body rendered you unclean. He also asked him to come to the home where she where she was lying, in her deathbed. Um, and he was not a Gentile. Remember the centurion said, "Look, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word, and she, and and the servant will be healed." There was no issue about going into this man's home, but for a Jewish person to be asked to go to a Gentile's home, that was like, we don't don't go there. And that's what held up Peter from seeing or wanting to see Cornelius initially. He had to be taught by God that the Gentiles were not unclean like dogs. That's how Jews would think of them pejoratively, like dogs. Very bad way of thinking of other human beings, and yet they did. Peter was cured of that, at least temporarily. He got, kind of fell back into his old ways in Galatians 2 when, Peter, or when Paul confronted him. Remember, he played the hypocrite, went no longer ate with the Gentiles. He ate with the Jews, but 
In any case, uh, no issue for Jesus to go even into a Gentile home, although he didn't, and no issue for him to go and touch a dead girl uh, because uncleanness was not a problem for him. When he, what he touched became clean. The power, the, the holiness, the purity. Uncleanness could not transmit to him. There was a basic change in the uh, operating system of the world. God's presence in Christ, in him as the divine logos, outweighed or canceled out the impurity that was in this dead body. So the ruler's daughter, the case resumes at 923, as we said. News is coming from the home, and it's getting worse Evidently, the progression is that, you know, it seems like she's dead. No, she's really dead. For sure, she's dead. And Jesus told the ruler along the way, don't be afraid, only believe. Just believe. That's in Mark 5.36. Mourners were hired to play music and to wail. And within 24 hours, this girl was going to be buried. Maybe, likely, the same day that she died, she would be buried. Very frequently the case. So they came to the home of the ruler, and there were tons of people weeping and wailing for the death of the little girl. I think probably you perceive this as I do, that the younger the victim, the bigger the grief. You know what I mean? If somebody's 90 years old, I don't mean to be callous, but you kind of expect them to croak, you know. Uh, they've lived a long life and they've been blessed. One of our brothers who used to be in the church said that when there was a passing in Africa, in their country, of a very elderly saint, it was basically a celebration. It was happy times. But when there was a passing of a young child or a teenager, oh, it's awful. The emotions that are attached to that, the, the, if you will, unfairness of life being snuffed out before the time is just too much, and the grief is deep. And so the victim, the younger the victim, the more the grief is multiplied. And so you have here, as we find out, a 12-year-old girl who has died. I mean, she's barely, she's barely lived. I mean, you know, if you have a, a 9-year-old or 12-year-old, 14-year-old, 15, 16-year-old, the time has just gone like that. What's 12 years? She's a child. She's not had a chance to live. She hasn't grown up yet. She hasn't married, had children, all the joys of life that she could have. and She's missed it out, missed all of that. Jesus tells them in verse 24, Make room, you know, kind of like make way, make way, I'm coming through here. The girl is not dead, but sleeping, actually sleeping, which, uh, you know, you might say, if you're kind of pessimistic, you might say, yeah, right, Jesus, she's sleeping. And, you know, knowing in your own mind that she's dead, and you know better than he does. But, you know, what? at that moment, she may have been sleeping. Because he may have already called her spirit back to her body and she may have been asleep there on the bed. But she had definitely been dead earlier, whatever the case. The one question that comes up here is, does Jesus view death as sleep? 
I don't think that's likely at all. Sleep is a euphemism. It's not the actual mode of death. So some people say, well, when you die, your soul sleeps. The scriptures teach another different thing, and that is when you die, your soul or spirit goes to be with the Lord consciously awake in heaven. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And they all who have died live to him who are in him, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, for example, in that passage in Matthew 22, as Jesus described it to the Pharisees. Um, So I don't think Jesus views death as sleep. He sees it as the euphemism that we do. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, because you've not discerned the Lord's body, there are many that are weak and sick, and some even sleep. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, those who sleep in Jesus will be raised. It's just a a metaphor. Um, And it's a very useful metaphor psychologically, isn't it? I mean, if you're standing before a casket with a dead person in there, it's somewhat easier to think of them as sleeping than as gone. You know what I mean? Like, it might not... It's not, it's not that they're sleeping. They are dead and gone. But you almost imagine them. They're like lying there in a sleep state. And that brings a little peace, perhaps, or a little peace of comfort to you. Um, perhaps, though, the Lord indicates by saying that it was sleep that death is not a permanent state. Death is not a permanent state. Like sleep comes to an end, death will also come to an end. And in the miracle, that's about to become evident. You know, um, I was saying this to Naomi, sometimes people say, you know, you only have one life, so go for the gusto, you know. You want something, get it. You want to do something, do it, whatever. Um, But, and I understand what is, is meant by that. You only live one life on this earth, but the statement, you only live once, is not true. You only live twice. And the way that you live the second time is totally determined by the way you live the first time. You get the difference? So you only live twice means you better do something right the first time, which, as we know, is believe the gospel and live for Christ. So you only live twice. But... Death is a temporary state. We have to keep you know, that in our minds, and that's what helps us to have hope when people are lost to death. Sleep comes to an end. Death also comes to an end. But the crowd did not believe what Jesus said, and so they ridiculed him. It's almost like, you know, there's some people who don't believe, and they're just kind of even-keeled about it. But then there are other people who don't believe, and they mock. They ridicule. Uh, Paul experienced this in Acts 17 at Mars Hill in the Areopagus. You know, he preached, and some believed, and some said, we'll hear you again on this matter, kind of, you know, we'll just take it under advisement, and others mocked him. Jesus and the resurrection, they said? Ridiculous. There's no such thing as resurrection. We know when you die, you die, and you're done. And these people, quote, knew that. This girl was done, finished. There was nothing else to be done for her. 
They made fun because they thought that Jesus was out to lunch. Well, let me suggest to you that if you think Jesus is out to lunch, you're the real, really the one that's out to lunch. And the authority um, that you have, I was just addressing this to a visitor here today, the authority that you have is nothing compared to what God has. Why should I listen to what Joe Schmo has to say when I can listen to what God has to say? Right? There's a huge, huge difference there. So they thought Jesus was uh, out of his mind, but he was the only one in his right mind, in fact. They, it says to us then that they put the crowd outside. They ushered everyone outdoors. This was meant to be a private event, what was coming up, not a public spectacle. Not a public spectacle. Jesus went in. You know, sometimes these miracles, just thinking about that issue, um, Jesus doesn't do them in this kind of spectacular way like, you know, people want to do power evangelism today and all these crazy things that go on in healing services and all that sort of stuff. Jesus didn't want the biggest crowd, at, you know, everybody on the front row watching. He put everybody out. Another sign of the, the, the legitimacy and the reality of what was going on here, the humility of it. Jesus went in, took her by the hand, and she got up. Well, I mean, just think about it. What is appropriate? You're in the hospital. You have some compromised health condition, and the doctors are coming in to speak with you about it. Do you want hundreds of people there around your bed listening in? Like, what's going on? You know? No. You want privacy. You want privacy. So Jesus went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Suppose you can just imagine the Lord grabbing the girl's hand and just gently pulling her up to a sitting position, and she's awake and alive. And the mom and the dad and a couple of the disciples are with him. That gentle hand has come out and firmly gripped hers, and life has flowed from the author of life, perhaps at that moment or perhaps it was before, and she really was sleeping and just needed to be awakened from her coma, so to speak. And he raises her to life. Can you imagine the joy and the relief of mom and dad? And the stories that they would tell around their table and around their home for decades to come, that this little girl was taken from us and a miracle healer named Jesus came and restored her to life and how they began to believe in him and trust in him. And, and they watched his career over the next couple of years as he was abused by the leaders and crucified and and then raised again from the dead. What a tremendous family history these folks would have. Mark 5.42 adds that she was 12 years old, which is curious just because as long as she was alive, the woman who had the bleeding problem had been in that state for 12 years, it says, the same amount of time. They had those afflictions. Now, news about this understandably spread everywhere. 
Here's a prophet who not only does all kinds of miraculous healings and casts out demons and stills a storm, but he has the power over death also. It's amazing. The results of the private activity were abundantly public. You couldn't hide the fact that the girl was alive. She came out of her room, came out of her house. Everybody saw her. They knew she had been dead. This should have induced awe and belief into the populace, but it did not widely do so, unfortunately. And notice in uh, Matthew 11.20, it says, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works were done, which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And you, you well, it says uh, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. Almost sounds like Edom, doesn't it, brother? Exalted to heaven. Yeah, like where the eagle flies. But you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus condemned cities such as this one, where a girl was raised from the dead and they did not repent. Can you imagine? the blasphemy, the insult, the shame of that. But that's how it was. The Lord continues to exhibit his great power and uh, some more miracles here. He heals two blind men. When Jesus departed from there, verse 27 says, two blind men followed him crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. The two men recognized Jesus was the son of David. In fact, he was the only son of David that mattered, the only son of David present at the time. Um, but they were blind. How did they know who Jesus was? I wonder out loud. Perhaps they used their other senses to listen and speak, ask questions of others and learn about him. They, they went ahead and they asked mercy for this, from this unique son of David. And they came to the house and they were greeted by a question. Are you, um, do you have enough faith, as it were, to believe that I'm able to, to do this, to heal them. And they said, yes, Lord. Well, if this happened after he raised a girl from the dead, the guys must have thought, well, I mean, if she got that, I mean, we could get some eyes, couldn't we? Maybe. Their faith was strong. Is our faith that strong? I'm not saying that we you know, believe that God will heal us from every affliction that we have, but in those areas where God is working today, not, not miraculous areas, but in those areas where God is working, and even in those normal providential situations, 
Do you have enough faith to believe that God can help you? Or is it seemingly impossible? You know, with, with man, all things are impossible, and with God, all things are impossible, you think. Nobody can get me out of this fix or this situation or whatever. Do you have the kind of faith that these blind men had? Now, he touched their non-functional eyes and made a declaration, according to your faith, let it be to you. So I wonder if they had 20-20 vision after that, or maybe their faith was not fully 20-20. It was, I don't know, what's a little less than 20-20, <laughs> you know? Probably had perfect vision after this. Even if their faith was imperfect, God doesn't heal halfway. With some healings, Jesus spoke. With others, he did not. The woman had healed uh, the, from the flow of blood with just a touch. Of course, the Lord spoke just after that fact. Uh, Jesus touched Peter's mother-in-law, just touched her. The fe- fever left her. Um, he gra- you know, uh, took the hand of the little girl. He didn't even go to the centurion's servant. He just said the word and he was healed got up off of his bed. Other times he, he uh, just spoke and whatever. Immediately they began to see. Immediately they began to see. Um, their eyes were opened. Just simple. Just a statement like that. No grand explanation. Just their eyes were opened. I'm, I'm always fascinated by this idea of instantaneous healings. I've mentioned it before. Uh, two other times, I think, you know, there's no surgery. There's no long recovery. There's no weight restrictions. There's no rehab or anything like that. It's just an instantaneous healing. And you just don't see that today. I've, since uh, college days, been fascinated. I almost worked on a project at the university uh, having to do with a high-resolution um, uh, acoustic uh, uh, cochlear implants to help people who have lost their hearing. And so I've followed that topic just out of curiosity and just a good technology topic to follow and to increase the resolution of that so that people can hear more music and voices and tones and things like that. But the process is quite involved to help restore somebody's hearing. If they have the capacity to have their hearing restored, they have to do a surgery where they implant a thing inside of the ear and they have a thing on the outside that inductively couples with that and then they have a speech processor and they send the sound through that system and um, they have to train the person to be able to hear. And I've watched numerous YouTube videos, maybe you've run into these before, of people who are hearing for the first time. And the emotion is overwhelming for them to hear their spouse or their child say, I love you for the first time. You just can't imagine. You know, we take it for granted hearing those words. And, uh, but it takes weeks and months of surgery and recovery and turning the thing on and adjusting it and programming it and all of this sort of stuff to get a low-resolution version of hearing back for somebody. And in this case, and they're trying to work on that with sight, by the way. There are some implants that do that. I see one of our brothers shaking his head. I've not followed that as closely, but that's also fascinating to me. I would think that it would be possible 
to do that. Uh, but the problem is the machine-human interface. How do you get that machine data into the, you know, uh, optic nerve and all of that sort of thing in the right format and everything? Weird, just strange. But you can imagine the kind of training that that would take. I mean, just think about, you know, the guy doing the programming gets it wrong and the images are upside down, you know, and they got to get turned over and the colors are wrong and all of this. Just crazy, crazy stuff. But here, the healing is immediate. They began to see. Now, the Lord spoke to them, and listen to this. It says, not only did he warn them, did he tell them, it says he sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows it. If they told everybody about it, it was going to make Jesus' life more difficult, if I could say it that way. If they stirred up more publicity, First, logistically, it would be more difficult for him to move around. The crowds would be bigger. It would be more crazy. Secondly, spiritually, it would be more difficult to convey his message. Why? If everybody says, look, Jesus can give you free food. Everybody's going to want to come and free food. Jesus, free food. Give us the free food. Give us the free... He wants to teach them the gospel. That's his main mission. This is why I came, to teach to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to to teach people the the ways of God. And so it would distract from his ability to convey the important message of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because people would be clamoring for more and more physical healing. Our problem is we tend to focus on the here and now. I want the healing. You know, it's the most important thing to me. My cancer has to go. My, My back is terrible. It's got to be fixed. Uh, you know, I've got a broken limb or whatever, and all those things have their place, and they need to be taken care of to reduce human suffering, but they're not the most important. Physical healing is secondary. Not, it's not the here and now that's the most important, but the hereafter that is more important. So the men with the newly minted eyes could not hold themselves back. They went around and told everybody, so it's not like they did just, you know, people began to notice that they were seeing and they kind of slowed down the progress of the news. You know, you know how you could do that, right? Just don't make a big deal about it. Just go away. Just, you know, go offer your sacrifices or whatever you're going to do because you're healed and, and go home and just lay low for a while. But they departed. They spread the news about him in all the country. It's like I was saying to the folks at the American House Bible study today. What's the quickest way to get somebody to do something? Tell them not to do it. And what's the quickest way to get somebody to not want something? To tell them to do it, right? And this is what happened with these men. So they went and told everybody. Uh, I grant their excitement would be hard to contain, but I'm just speculating. If a man could heal you, to make you be able to see, and tells you not to say something, wouldn't you think to obey him because he might take back the healing that he did? <laughs> that he's, he'd be able to do that? You might wonder if you disobeyed that kind of man, what would happen to you? Well, uh, man, this chapter just keeps on going. But here, we'll try to get through this last part here. Just a few more verses. Another healing. <clears throat> yeah, we've got to do this one. This is great. 
Uh, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It has never been seen like this in Israel. Again, they were awestruck. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. What a sad testimony. As I mentioned, I think before this introduces the subject of the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus, and uh, that's going to appear in the upcoming chapters again two or three times, culminating in chapter 12 when they just, they just outright rejected Christ. And then Christ rejected them. In Matthew 13, he begins to speak in parables as a judgment upon those who did not believe in him. Their postulation that Satan was divided against himself was foolishness, but they, they held to that illogic in their irrational, sinful mindset. So here's another account of a man who was unable to speak. He was demon-possessed, um, and obviously it seems like the demon possession was the cause of the muteness. Uh, Jesus ordered the demon to come out. He came out. The man could suddenly speak. Don't know if he had learned... Uh, to speak before uh, and then had lost that ability and was now regaining it or he had never spoken, we don't know. But the crowds noticed this and said, hey, this is, this is incredible. Now, as far as, I just want to mention a couple words of application from this and the other miracles. The four miracles we have just studied and those from chapters 8 and also from chapter 4 seem to be healings of what we would call a physical nature. The man whose sins were forgiven was a clear exception to that general statement. That was a spiritual healing. Uh, and the men who were saved from the demons that were sent into the pig herd, and this fellow here who had the demon. Um, but I wanted to, us to remember that the physical and the spiritual are always tied together. They cannot be entirely separated from one another. This becomes evident when we read about miracles that have to do with death. Because death is a spiritual problem. Why did death come into the world? Because of sin. Sin is a spiritual problem that causes death with all of its physical impacts, with all disease, sorrow, pain, suffering. In fact, the departure of man from God is both a spiritual and physical problem because God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they began to die physically right away. They died spiritually immediately, and they finished dying physically some years later. All disease and death are tied to sin, and any real significant reduction in the effects of sin has to have a spiritual connection. Any real significant reduction of the effects of sin has to have a spiritual connection. You can temporarily forestall the effects of sin, but you cannot or, or fix them. I'm saying like, you know, the broken leg or something. You can, okay, but then the person's going to end up dying in the end anyway uh, in the long run. You've reduced suffering in the meantime, which is a good thing. But all those things are tied into sin. The Lord did and could do the fantastic physical healings because he had spiritual power, spiritual power beyond measure. Related to this is the following thought process. If the Lord has the power to recreate physical life, what stops him from giving somebody spiritual life, eternal life? Nothing, nothing at all. 
Nothing can stop him from doing that. The miracles in our realm, our physical realm, help us to understand the power of Christ and what he can do in the realm that's beyond what we natively know by experience. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, Jesus was interfacing or um, bridging the gap between the spiritual realm that we don't understand and the physical realm which we do understand by saying, look, I will do a physical miracle, raise this guy up to demonstrate that I have power also in the spiritual realm. So he's bridging that gap, the only one human being in, in time who has ever done it that way. If he can heal the physical uncleanness like leprosy and a flow of blood, do you think he can heal the spiritual uncleanness that's caused by sin, by forgiving the sin? Of course he can. If the Lord can restore sight to the blind, can he restore spiritual sight? Of course he can. If he can raise up those who are sick or if he can still the raging waves, can he raise you up out of difficulty or depression? Of course he can. If the Lord can fix the speech of a mute person, can he help you to speak the works of God and to testify of God's grace to your family and acquaintances? Can he do that? Of course he can. He can do all of these things. He has the power that is beyond measure. And so, thus, it's so out of place to see this criticism by the Pharisees. He casts out demons by the prince of the demons. What are you talking about? He, he casts them out by the finger of God, and he demonstrates that he is from God and that he's powerful and he's able to help us with our speech, with our sight, with our spiritual problems, with our forgiveness, the forgiveness we need, because he is the Son of God, in power. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this exposition of Matthew 9, of the text here that you have given, that demonstrates to us the vast, immeasurable power of Christ. Help us tonight to trust him. Like the blind men, when he said, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord, we believe. We believe that... He is able. He is able to deliver thee. As we sang again this evening, we thank you for that reminder. Lord, thank you for taking those who are most wretched and turning us into saints. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.